Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. I'm your host, Ben. Uh, today, I'm excited to have uh, a guest from uh, south of the border. We don't get too many uh, uh, U.S. guests on as they tend to uh, get covered in a lot of the other great podcasts that are out there. But every now and then, I like to dip down in the States when I see someone doing something funky and cool. And uh, today's guest is is a perfect example of that. Uh, let's just like to welcome Dr. Victoria Suarez to uh, to the podcast. So Vic, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited about it. Me too. Super pumped. So um, Vic is um, uh, recently got her PhD and um, but has, you know, and, and often when we see with uh, sort of new PhD uh, 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 folks, you'll, you'll get, they'll have a dissertation and if, if we get to them soon enough, they're lucky, lucky enough to get that published. But Vic's got uh, quite a few things already published, and I thought that was pretty cool. And, and, and they cover kind of a, a wide variety of areas that I haven't spent a lot of time on. And so that, that to me, that's even more interesting. And so really pumped to kind of talk about, uh, uh, she's, she's done a paper on, as it relates to kind of ACT and, and RFT and empathy training and interprofessional collaboration. So a, a, a vast array of areas that we're going to be able to touch on today. But before we get to that, um, Vic, why don't you give us um, kind of your, your origin story, kind of how you got into the field and kind of how do you got to where you are now? Yeah, sure. So I kind of got into the field pretty serendipitously. I finished my bachelor's degree in psychology and I knew I needed to go to grad school because that just kind of felt like what happens next. But I wasn't totally sure like what subfield of psychology I wanted to explore. There were so many options. And so um, someone told me about Pepperdine's program and the way it was introduced to me was like very casual. It has something to do with autism. I don't really know, but you might think it's interesting. And I was really interested because I have a sibling with autism. So naturally I was motivated to find out some more about it. Read about the program, seemed interesting. I really didn't know what ABA was, got accepted, started the program, learned all about ABA and totally fell in love with it. And that's how it all started. Okay. So you did your undergrad and then right into sort of a master's degree. Mm-hmm. Um, most folks, um, although I'm, uh, I actually, I don't fall into this category, but most folks that I know seem to have sort of had some experience kind of, you know, doing maybe like RBT kind of work or interventionist work with folks with autism. Some folks have have shared kind of a similar story about a family member with autism that kind of got them into the field. Did you do any kind of intervention work before you started your grad studies? No, I didn't do any sort of intervention work. I always liked working with students of any sort. I did your typical daycare job. I taught ballet classes. I was a dancer growing up. So I always liked teaching students. And so when I started working as an RBT, it wasn't until I was already in my master's program at Korean Hours. um, But I really liked that it was sort of that teaching interaction that you get with students. And that really uh, motivated me to just learn more about it and be really interested in about it. But I didn't start any RBT work or even know anything about what ABA looked like in practice until I started accruing hours in my master's program. So that that's so weird to me. I, I mean, I, I, in that just because I'm so used to sort of that hearing about that sort of 
process that everyone goes through where they do the BI work because they saw the ad at, at a school somewhere or, uh, you know, needed a job and, you know, had a playful, you know, attitude or whatever and kind of got into it. And then eventually, you know, you know, maybe applied to grad school. I is is that a was that a sort of a typical scenario at Pepperdine that they sort of, you know, let folks into a program that didn't come in with sort of any work experience? I don't know that it was. Our cohort no. was very small. I was a part of the first cohort for Pepperdine's uh, master's program, and mm. it was a behavioral psychology program. Now it's an applied behavior analysis program. Mm. And our cohort was pretty small. And I remember a lot of my peers were already working as RBTs yeah. or at least had some experience. So I was kind of in this position where it all happened really fast. I started accruing my hours towards my BCBA, but also starting as an RBT. And I did an intensive practicum option. So I only needed 750 hours. And when I finished and I accrued all my hours, I really didn't have that much experience as an RBT. I only mm-hmm. had a little over a year and a half under my belt. So it really was kind of difficult to get the experience in the time that I had to accrue the hours. So then I finished my master's program, accrued my hours, sat for my exam and became board certified, but really just didn't have a lot of field work experience in terms of time that I had been practicing as an RBT. So my first year post-certification, I worked doing just direct work and really working closely with more seasoned BCBAs so I could get some more experience hours, even though I had already been certified. Right, right, right. Oh, good. That makes sense. Yeah, and I, you know, and you know, I think you kind of answered the question there with it being the first year, the, the first cohort for that program. That that probably played a role in sort of, you know, how they, you know, in terms of, you know, accepting folks and you are, yeah. you're already being a student there, I guess, as an undergrad and they knowing you for that, that way. Whereas some of these other programs that have been around a long time, I guess they start to maybe develop some, you know, competition kind of standards right. or whatever, you know, I just know when I applied, uh, you know, to get into my master's program, they said no. And it was because I had no experience and and they said, you have to go back and be a BI for at least a year, which is what they call them up here, the RBTs, um, a behavior interventionist, and then, and then go back and apply, which was so odd because I was applying to be, uh, you know, uh, to do my master's degree so I could work with adults. And so uh, going and being a BI with three-year-olds didn't seem, right. I didn't see, I didn't see how it could, it didn't even connect for me. And so the moment I got into the school, I quit the job um, <laughs> and uh, stopped being an RBT BI um, and went back to sort of doing what I was used to doing. So yeah, so then you sort of continued it after. Are you still doing intervention work now? I'm not doing direct work now. I'm just doing supervision now. So I work as a clinical supervisor and I'm also, I'm doing some research. So I'm doing both clinical practice and then some research work. And supervision has been a neat experience too, because it's sort of like teaching the teacher, which I think is such a unique model that we have in our field. Mm -hmm. And it's been really cool to sort of see how you can train the trainer and the way that that plays out in our practice. When I ask these questions, I'm not sort of, uh, I hope this doesn't come off as, as, as judgy because I don't, I don't mean it to at all. Yeah. Uh, but um, when you're supervising folks now, is it strange or odd not having a lot of experience of your own to then supervise folks? I think that's a good question. And I feel like every day I'm learning more and gaining more and more applied experience. So I've had now um, a handful of different clients with different presenting problems and skill sets. So I feel like 
each client is unique case that presents with unique skill deficits and and skill strengths. And so mm-hmm. I always feel like I'm learning something new and I don't know if that ever stops, but it hasn't stopped for me quite just yet. So it's always exciting to sort of really see how each learner is so unique. And I always feel like I definitely have a good support system of different clinicians that I can consult with or get ideas from or problem solve with. So that's definitely helpful. So are you doing that work sort of as part of a a private agency outside of the kind of the research that you're doing? Yeah, exactly. And so then did you go right into the PhD from the grant from your master's or? I did. I did. I finished my master's um, in the summer. So I graduated around May, sat for my exam in August and started my PhD program in September. So it all happened really, really fast. Wow. And and so again, uh, I guess... And again, I've never applied for a PhD program, and but the the PhD program was, you know, getting into that program. I guess having years and years of sort of intervention under your belt wasn't a requirement, and and uh, they were cool to kind of just kind of kind of move you right through it. Because it it sounds like you've, uh, you know, I I heard you on a on, a, on Instagram, um, uh, oh the dissemination station, uh, Instagram, yeah, uh, uh, channel there, and just. I think Jasmine, the host, had kind of pointed out how quickly you became you you did your PhD. Like you did, like you were like it was like record time from <laughs> sort of undergrad to PhD from her perspective. Yeah, um, you know, I, I'm sure it, it took more time than than than, than that, but um, uh, to kind of just gun right through. And now you're you know you know still super young, but uh, uh, already a, a published author and and kind of moving forward. Um, so is kind of research kind of your baby? Is that kind of the, the direction you want to go or, 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 or are you looking to sort of get more into sort of the clinical stuff too? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's really hard for me because I really love both. I think that research really challenges me in any, a unique way that I really appreciate. And of course, clinical practice challenges me too. There's just something about research that I am really driven to. It's really fun for me to sort of think of new ways to apply the principles that we have or to explore new things um, and just get them out for other people to use within clinical practice or to extend in some research way. And I really, really like that. And at the same time, I really like clinical practice just because of the impact that it has. Um, I mentioned earlier, I have a sibling with autism and interestingly, he never received any ABA services. He's now an adult. Mm. And so I've really sort of watched from a sibling perspective, how there was just so, so many opportunities missed that I think if supports would have been in place would have turned out a little bit different. And so Mm. it's really exciting to me to offer those supports to families and Mm -hmm. to be on the clinician end of just being there as a support system for families. How how old is he? If you don't mind me asking, he's 22, he'll be 23 in August. And so did, you know, and I don't want to, Again, if, if these questions are personal, yeah. please just tell me. Uh, but wh- why didn't he have any services? That's a really great question. I think at the time of his diagnosis, it all was a lot more novel than it is now. Mm. And so the types of services that he received, a lot of them were services that we see now, like occupational therapy and speech therapy. And then others were just straight bad treatments, a lot of diets, a lot of Mm. um, oxygen treatments, um, equestrian interventions, just things that we sort of hear of that we know don't have a strong evidence base behind. And um, I've 
talked to my parents about looking for ABA intervention and funding has been a barrier. And so it mm. just seems like as he gets older, it gets harder. And I've sort of watched that play out and just as time has gone on. You know, and I, I don't want to dig too much into him, uh, but has all the training you've done now, has that changed how you interact with him at all? That's a great question. Um, in some ways, it's really kind of supported the ways that I've always interact with him, but then also mm. sort of informed ways that I can interact better. And mm. um, interestingly, growing up, we had a very close relationship and he didn't have vocal verbal skills until later in his elementary years. Mm. And in the early years, I would always know what he was saying somehow. Hmm. And so I always kind of felt in tune with picking up on what different types of communication responses can look like and how to sort of pay attention to consequences and how they can inform what functions of behavior might be. I'm obviously not knowing any of that at the time. So it's kind of really, as I've learned more and more about our science, it's kind of supported interactions that I look back on and I see like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And then also just informed how I can keep doing better by helping out in any way I can. I always find that when, I, when I've sort of been in the position of hiring staff, that when I've been able to hire staff that had family members, particularly siblings, I think, or children even, but siblings with with you know with that were that were autistic, that they had such a unique perspective that a that a staff person could never have because you know you have that connection and that relationship that obviously would be you know unethical for a staff person right. to have, and so you really have that I guess you know. I don't know, qualitative, I guess, uh, perspective, um, you know, whereas a BI is a lot more quantitative, I think, in some ways. And so I think you get um, a really good experience base with that, even though so even though you maybe never, didn't have, you know, RBT time on your resume, sure. you had, uh, you know, 10, 15, however old he, he was until you got into the field, um, years of, uh, of, of experience as a sibling, which I think can be so much more valuable. Yeah, definitely helpful. Cool, cool. So, okay, so did your PhD and, and, and when did you when did you finish that? I finished that just a few months ago. I graduated this May. So fresh out. Yeah, thanks so much. And uh and so maybe it was kind of start getting into the nitty gritty. And and uh, again, like I said, you've done uh, you've you you you've already pushed a few papers out and and got them published, which is just just incredible and a great, uh, you know, a great accomplishment so early on. I can only imagine what else is to come. Actually, before I get into that, are you, are, so are you still working for Pepperdine or like where are you doing, where are you able to do research now? Yeah, good question. I am working for Pepperdine. I'm adjunct dean for their MS and ABA program. So I'm still involved with Pepperdine. And then I'm also working through Halo Behavioral Health as a part of their research lab. Hmm. So we have a research lab that we're running there where we brainstorm different ideas and kind of put our research together through the lab. Hmm. And are there other notable folks there or I haven't heard of Halo but I, I bet you I've probably heard of someone that's in there. Yeah, Dr. Donadowski is the research director. Mm. Um so she's running our lab and Megan St. Clair is involved in the lab. She's um the founder of Halo, so she supports all the research and really facilitates it. Cool, cool. And and was that was that the person that runs the lab were they also involved in your dissertation? 
Adele was involved in my dissertation. She was my um, doctoral advisor. So she was a part of all of the research I did throughout the program. And nice. um, yeah, super supportive and really couldn't have pushed any of these studies out without that support. And, yeah, and maybe we'll start by just jumping into your dissertation, which is just, I mean, just even looking, just sort of looking at sort of page three of the acknowledgements, of course, you've got, you've got her as your advisor, but then you've got like, um, you know, you essentially have like a guru from sort of every angle of the field here, you know, I mean, uh, obviously, Dr. Prosecki, she did kind of the the study that your study was based on. Right. Uh, and then, you know, and then everybody knows Jonathan Tarbucks and Justin Leaf, you know, both sort of, you know, not sort of both are prolific, yeah. um, uh, you know, uh, uh, outputters of research, uh, you know, Tarbucks and in, in certainly in a lot of realms, but a lot more in act these days. And so I imagine that's sort of where some of that piece probably came in. And then, and then Dr. Leaf is just, um, well, you know, he's, he's got, he's a, he's a generational researcher, yeah. um, you know, and, uh, and, and those guys at the autism partnership put out, you know, uh, an incredible amount of research on an incredible amount of topics. So pretty, pretty awesome sort of set of mentors for you. Yes, definitely. Um, okay, so what, what was this study about? What, what, what was what's going on here? So the study was looking at how we can evaluate racism using a relational frame theory perspective, and then finding out when we apply relation to teach different frames of coordination versus distinction. How does that? impact empathy or um, how does empathy change when there are these different relational frames presented? Okay. So there's a, <laughs> and this is why I love having uh, love, love choosing my own guests for the podcast because I get to learn about topics in a lot more detail than I'd ever get the chance to. Most of what you said, I have no idea what it means um, <laughs> beyond, beyond racism and empathy. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of two questions. First, what made you kind of choose this topic? Uh, I, I, I mean, obviously, it's a, a, I guess, you know, racism is certainly a, a conversation, an important topic that's, you know, at, at, at the front of a lot of folks' minds right now. Was it related to that? Or was this something you were interested in before? Or was it because of Dr. Persicki? Yeah, a little bit of everything. So Dr. Persicki's study, and for anyone who's not familiar with it, was evaluating how relational frame theory um, informs empathy. And so in her study, she basically saw what happens to people's empathy when they think that people are the same as them in terms of their values, or when they think people are different from them. And she found that empathy does change depending on whether you believe that someone else has similar values to you, or whether you believe that they have different values from you. So when all of the recent social events related to racism started surfacing, we really started talking about what can we do? And we had a meeting, Adele and Angela and me, and we talked about, well, we could definitely extend Angela's study and sort of see what happens when we have these relational frames presented to individuals who might display a racial bias. Mm. And we just sort of picked it up and started it and it turned into my dis. Nice, nice. Okay, and so that 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 makes sense. And so, question two, which I think will be a, a bit of a longer answer, you started kind of describing. So, so just for the listeners, um, my my background in RFT is nil. 
um, uh, I I am lucky enough to have a supervisee as a supervi- as a BCBA supervisor that's getting her own mentorship and act and whatnot, and, and so I, I'm, I'm able to sort of learn about some of the bits about act through her. But um, in in terms of RFT, I know nothing. But your paper does do a great job of kind of uh, giving an overview of that piece. But um, you know, I, as I also mentioned before, my my memory isn't always so great. Um, and so I was wondering if you might just be able to kind of, you know, I, I don't I don't know if it's possible in sort of the short amount of time we have, but give me a kind of a little bit of an overview of what RFT even is and then kind of what what all these different frames are about because it it, it it certainly adds a whole other pile of jargon to our already full jargon field. Right. Yeah, for sure. So with relational frames, and I was very new to relational frame theory whenever I started my dissertation and, and looking at this topic. So whenever I started to sort of explore it, I found that it's similar to stimulus equivalents in that you have these derived relations. And the only difference is that with relational frame theory, you have different types of relations. So you can have frames of similarity or difference. Um, And really, it just depends on the way that you connect these different verbal frames. So within our language, we communicate about different things. And with relational frame theory, the way that we sort of connect these different topics or verbal behaviors together can be through different frames of either similarity or distinction and many other frames. But related to um, empathy, especially, we can see that sometimes we relate to different stimuli, either as maybe being similar to us or things that we value or believe in or different from us or things that we value and believe in. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to go to www.cbiconsultants.com and enter the three secret words. The first secret word is collaboration. This all kind of comes out of this idea of of stimulus equivalence, and, and I think that kind of goes... Does that go like back to like Sidman or something like that? Like it goes way back, right? Yeah, yeah. right. The idea that you have what is, is there's sort of three levels, right? Is there sort of the symmetry? So if A equals B, then B equals A. Is that sort of the idea? And then and then it's reflexivity. Is that what the other one is? Yeah. Can you explain so, those maybe? Yeah. Sure, sure. So with stimulus equivalence, you have your A equals A, yeah. um, which is they're the same. And then you right. have that A could equal B. And so if A equals B, then B must equal A. And if A equals C, then B must equal C too. And so you sort of derive Mm. this third piece, even though you weren't necessarily taught it. And so that can happen in different ways where we might be given information about these two pieces and then derive this third piece, even though we weren't explicitly trained in that third piece. And that's where it all sort of stems from. And is that, so that's really it. I mean, it's, I mean, if we, if we really simplified it, this is g- relational frame theory, and and for all the the pros out there that might have turned this on by accident, um, um, and and are, and maybe are hearing me butchering it. It's it's essentially just a, a lot of different ways of looking at how 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 we learn about C. Yeah, like how things are related to each other and how we sort of pick up on information that's not explicitly there because of the way that things are related to one another. 
And so I've heard, and again, another area that I'm also not really deep into is just is verbal behavior in general. It seems to be, it seems like RFT, and also apparently, as I understand it, it maybe the T is not even a pro, an appropriate term. It's not really a theory. It, it's a thing. Like, it's it's out there. Like, it's it's not something we're still trying to prove, right? Yeah, that's a good question. And I actually don't know a perfect answer to that. I know it's called relational framing theory. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it, it wasn't really a question. I mean, because I have heard other folks refer to it as, as an inappropriately named sort of... Um, sort of area because it's not a theory it's yeah it's you know people have said maybe it should be training or well when i think about it i would imagine that maybe we can kind of conceptualize it in the same way as radical behaviorism like we have this idea that there's this different way or unique way i guess of viewing processes that happen or phenomena that happen and so when we actually like go see if it actually works that way and we find that it does it kind of supports that yeah yeah, no, that makes sense. Okay, so, sorry, is it, I know you you passed me sort of a preprint. Is this published now? This yeah, time? it's published in ProQuest as a dissertation, so it can okay. be accessed there. I don't know that right. it's really available, but I can certainly share right. with anyone who's interested. And then the goal is to have it not be 87 pages long and yeah, publish yeah, yeah. it in a journal. Gotcha. <laughs> so that, 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 that's on the list of things yeah. to do. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Um, but anyway, I, I, I would highly recommend anyone... Uh, who has the opportunity to pick up sort of the the ProQuest version? It it does give a really nice kind of um, overview of of all of these different frames and what they mean and where they come from and and sort of those that sort of piece. And so there's sort of these three kind of key components um, as I'm, as a from reading your paper. There's this mutual entailment, mm-hmm. which sounds a lot like the symmetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the combinatorial entailment, which mm-hmm. kind of sounds a lot like the reflexivity kind of idea. And then this whole, this idea of transformation of stimul- stimulus function, which re- really seems to be important. Can you explain the transformation of stimulus function part? Yeah, for sure. So you're exactly right in that we have these sort of main, basically behavioral repertoires with the mm. combinant. And it's kind of important to put them all together so we can get to the transformation of stimulus function. But with the combinatorial entailment, it is that sort of A to A. Um, so for example, if you have information about one thing, then you can get information about another thing and kind of combine those together, even mm-hmm. though you weren't explicitly trained. So if someone tells you that, for example, Mauricio is nicer than Daryl, then you'll know that Daryl is not as nice as Mauricio and you can kind mm-hmm. of flip them and get that information and combine mm-hmm. that information. And then with your transformation of stimulus function, this is where the information that you have from one component can then transform the way that you view another component. So let's say that you learn that the queening staff of a business is made up of primarily Latinx women. Then you might encounter a woman that's named Lorena. And just based on her name having a Latin origin, you might assume that she's a part of the cleaning staff, even though you don't know what role she plays in that environment. So you're transforming the function per se of the stimulus that you have because of information that you have about other similar stimuli. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So when it comes to, we won't dive any more into sort of everything because that'll take the whole podcast, but um, 
in terms of your study and around empathy, so what what were you looking at specifically when it comes to RFT and empathy? Yeah, so we were looking at how whenever we present different frames of either coordination or distinction and opposition, what happens to individuals' empathy? And these are individuals that displayed racial bias. So first we had this pre-screening assessment where we presented different scenarios of people having different situations happen to them. And all of the situations were based on the participants' values. So first we would figure out what is important to the participant, what do they value? And then in the pre-screening, we would show them pictures of individuals from all different races um, running into situations related to their values. So, for example, if the participant said they really valued their family and their career, then in the pre-screening, they would see pictures of individuals from different types of races, either getting fired from their jobs, getting promoted, going on a family vacation, having a falling out with a family member, and so on. And then they would score um, what their empathy rate was upon hearing about that scenario. So they either felt really happy or neutral or really sad. Um, and we had this Likert scale that they would score on. And then whichever race they scored the lowest, and we had a criteria that they had to score at least a certain amount of points lower than their own race for it to be considered a potential bias. So whatever race they scored the lowest on was the race that we then used for the training. And in the training, we would present the same pictures with scenarios, but just of the training race. And we would tell them before they encountered the scenario that the person was either the same or different as them related to their value. So let's say we were talking about the value of family. We would say the person you're going to learn about next is different from you in terms of their value of family. And then we would have them identify what someone who is different from them would probably do. So maybe they like would skip out on family events. And then we would present the scenario of the person experiencing either a positive or a negative event related to family and then ask them how they felt. And what we found is that anytime the relational frame of coordination was presented, so anytime they thought that the person was similar to them, they were a lot more empathetic than when they thought the person was opposite of them or different from Mm. them. When they thought the person was opposite from them or different from them, they either didn't have a lot of empathy or they even had counter empathy where they actually felt the opposite emotion of the character. So for example, if the character um, was fired, they would actually feel happy about it if they thought that the character was different from them sometimes. Wow. Wow. Okay. So, well, first, first off, kind of just stepping back a bit, I, I get the, I get the RFT piece. How did we suddenly get values into the mix? Yeah, that's a great question. And the values piece is a way of presenting the frames. Like, how can we present them as the same versus different? Well, things they value is a way that we can do that. And really, we don't know if it's the values piece that led to the behavior change in terms of the different empathy ratings. So we could explore presenting frames through different types of similarities and differences, like maybe similar experiences. So we don't really know that that values piece is essential for the frames to have an effect. It's Mm -hmm. just what we tried in the study. I guess I'm just kind of digging a bit here. I've heard so much about, you know, how, and again, and this maybe we can get into this more when we talk about your, what your other paper, I've heard so much about how, your values are a huge component of act. Right. And I don't even know why that is. And we can maybe get into that when we talk about the next paper. But, sure. Um, but, but maybe we have to talk about it now uh, too, because to answer the question, um, was that why values was sort of that, that was selected because it's a thing that kind of comes out of act. And maybe the thought is that down the road, you know, and I'm, I'm maybe I'm just stretching here, you know, it might be an act intervention that you're, 
you know, treating sort of racism with or whatnot? Or was it, or did you just pick values sort of out of the blue? Or is it because of Dr. Persicki used values before? Yeah, it's because Dr. Persicki used values in her study. Um, so she might have a really good answer for us. There you but, go. good. Well but done. just thinking about it, values, I think, are a really good way for us to figure out what's important to people. And when we can relate to others in terms of what's important to us, I think it can really have an impact on our perceptions. So if it's really important to you, for example, to um, have a good family relationship, then you'll probably really relate to someone who also finds that important. And so values, I think, are a good way to sort of hone down on what's important to people and how do we identify with them in terms of things that we also care about. It's just that it seems like values, and that makes sense. It seems like values kind of, um, it almost informs the bias in a way, because if you tell me that, you know, Joe on the screen, you know, values, um, you know, family and, and, and work, and I value family and work, then I'm going to make a judgment about Bob. Right. And, and assume that he's a good person right. because he values family and work. But then if you tell me that Mike, you know, you know, values, um, I don't know. Um, the opposite of work and family. Just yeah. disrespect, disrespect and, and laziness. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have a different opinion. Did you sort of, the so the values that you picked, were they were there based on the values of the subjects? Exactly. So the subjects would tell us, I value these things. We did a values right. assessment first. And then that's how we informed what we would tell them that the person had a similar value to and then what the scenarios would be. So if they said, I valued work and family, then all those scenarios were about work and family, like getting promoted, getting demoted, uh, getting fired, getting hired for a dream job, going on a family vacation, having a falling out with a family member and right, so on. Right. And that was really just a way to pinpoint what's important to them. And what's interesting is that all of the scenarios were about their values, but when they didn't know if the person was the same versus different from them, they scored this one race lower. So while our pre-screening assessment isn't sort of a verified way to identify bias, I think it's pretty, I'll say obvious, but hmm. obvious <laughs> that there is a bias yeah. of some sort because why are they rating this one race or all yeah. of the characters from this one race so much lower than the characters from the other races when the scenarios are the same? And so the thought is that the individuals from this race might be in a frame of distinction from this person just because of their different skin color. And if we can get them to be in a frame of similarity in some way by maybe having a similar value, then maybe we can correct that. And what we saw is that the bias that was there in the pre-screening, once there was a frame of coordination, the empathy got better. And when there was a frame of distinction, the empathy got worse. So it kind of supports that biases may be due to frames of distinction. And if we can present mm -hmm. a frame of coordination in some way, then it could help us be more empathetic towards individuals who we might have a bias towards. So if you're in a situation where you're feeling low empathy, like maybe you see um, an individual on the news who's gotten in some sort of trouble and you don't feel bad about it, you could sort of challenge yourself to think of, well, what if we're the same in some way? And what if we have similar values in some way? And maybe that can enhance your empathy. Totally, totally. That makes a lot of sense. So that's like the big uh, picture of it. Yeah, um, yeah. And the hope is that that does happen. So we don't know, obviously, how it extends beyond the research conditions. 
in the social validity, we did let participants know what the actual goal of the study was because they didn't know what it was going into it. And Mm. so we did let them know that at the end, the purpose was to see how empathy towards people of other races changed when they believed they were similar versus different from them. And um, most of the participants, I think all of them, I would have to look back, but they all reported that having empathy towards people of other races was important to them and that it was valuable and that they would recommend learning about how people might be similar to them after going through the training. Mm-hmm. And were the subjects themselves all from different races too? or Yeah, they were. And we had two Latinx individuals, mm. one Black individual, a white individual, and an Asian individual. Mm, gotcha. And did, uh, well, I guess the, 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 the question is, did, did, the, did the white person have more bias than the others? Not more per se. What was interesting though, is that they all displayed biases towards different races. So Mm. for example, um, the first participant who was a Latinx participant displayed bias towards the Asian group. And the Mm -hmm. second Latinx participant showed a bias towards the white race group. The white participant showed a bias towards the black group. The Asian participant showed a bias toward, I think it was a Latinx group. So they each Mm -hmm. had biases for these different groups, which I thought was really interesting and really just showed how the different frames had an effect across the different participants and their biases. So this is cool. I mean, there's a a few studies out there and I think this is going to be a good sort of motivation for me to start reading them. And um, I I apologize to... uh, uh, you know, in advance to Denisha Jingles for all of the great <laughs> articles she's she's uh, curated for these these um, these wonderful special issues and amazing authors and amazing titles. I have not read them all. Um, I would like to. Yeah. Um, uh, I find the podcast sort of uh, in, uh, in a way forces me to read research, um, uh, but I, I'm going to have to get some of those folks on as guests so I can read their research. But it's just amazing how many different sort of angles that we're coming at with behavior analysis right. towards kind of dealing with racism. And I really like this empathy idea. Like this just seems like a, a brilliant sort of direction to go. What's the next step? That's a great question. Um, we wrote a paper on sort of how we can apply these findings, which is what I was sort of describing earlier. Like if you're in a situation where you're feeling that your empathy is low, how you can challenge yourself to think of similarities that might exist between you and the individual who you're feeling your empathy is low for and see if that enhances it in some way. The paper that we put together is um, specifically aimed at the behavior analytic audience. So for behavior analysts themselves working um, with individuals from different racial groups, how can they sort of practice looking at their values and identifying ways that they might be similar to enhance their empathy in different scenarios. So again, it's all sort of kind of like, we could try this and see what happens, but we don't really know if it'll extend beyond these research conditions. So I think the next step is to really try it and see what type of effect it has in an applied setting. Is empathy training a thing anyway, like outside of sort of racism? Uh, It seems like it it should be a thing, Um, but I've never, I've never actually heard of empathy training in and of itself. Yeah, I don't think I have either. And I did a lot of digging when I wrote yeah. my dissertation. So there's all of this information about how the different relational frame theory applied to empathy or applied to racism. And the empathy training specifically, I don't know that there's a lot out there on. Yeah, because I, 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 I mean, again, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I don't. 
I don't. I, I haven't found myself to be a, a super empathetic person. I, I've I've struggled with empathy. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, I I think I've gotten better as I've gotten older and kind of you know learned the importance of it. And, and um, I just I I, could, I just could see empathy training sort of being a value a valuable thing sort of you know in any kind of early intervention for anybody. Yeah. I think that that I think that was the thing that really drew me to your study. It wasn't so much the racism piece, which I think is super important, but it was the empathy training. I, and I, I was sort of surprised that I'd never heard of anyone doing empathy training before, before your study, and I guess and 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 the previous one. And so it's really just nice to see, you know, behavior analysis working on some of these other areas that, um, you know, maybe we didn't address, and maybe it's because of RFT and and uh, that we're now able to kind of. Um, dive deep into some of these other sort of constructs that in the past we might have just, you know, labeled as mentalism and right. left to the, left to the side right. and not dealt with. And I, I think RFT does offer us a way to start to look out how we can evaluate empathy, train it, and so on. The barrier we still have is the measurement piece. So mm. in my dissertation and in Angela's dissertation, our dependent variable is a self-report and from a behavior analytic audience that might not be so well received because we know that self-report can be flawed. But at the same time, Skinner talked about how the person who's reporting has the most information about what they're reporting. And so in some way, it's the most accurate because it's coming from the person themselves, but in another way, it could be skewed um, because it might not be accurate. That's a limitation, but at the same time, I feel like looking at the data, it's so consistent and it changed in a pattern that was predictable and that we could control. And that shows that it is a valid dependent variable, but there's still that limitation of it being a self-report. It's just, it's just, this is resonating. I, I, I did, I just did a podcast interview on Friday uh, for those that are listening today's Tuesday, <laughs> uh, but, um, uh, and, and, and it was with, uh, actually my, my, uh, mentor, uh, Dr. Joe Lucician at UBC. And he's, he said the exact same quote, uh, I believe about Skinner and, and that sort of piece about, about, you know, folks sort of uh, telling their story and it being pretty accurate. Um, and he's been really pushing for, uh, the use of more, uh, you know, kind of qualitative research alongside of the quantitative research, yeah. um, um, and really finding a lot, a, a lot of value, especially in some of them. I think there's, I think there's some really neat kind of tools out there to sort of, you know, analyze the thematic analyses and ethnographic stuff, and a lot of lots sort of sort of different, uh, you know, uh, research methods that have been, you know, tried and tried and true for for decades um that you know that can be really powerful here and i I, you know i think yeah i think a self i think i think you know i think a limitation isn't so much that self-reporting isn't isn't necessarily always accurate i think the limitation is is that is 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 that we're limited yeah is that that we're not open to sort of could self-report and be honest and um and uh, and the consistency of that kind of self-reporting and that kind of qualitative analysis. So I think it's great that you included that. Cool. So that that was your dissertation. Yeah. Uh, really neat. Uh, looking forward to when that kind of kind of gets published. Maybe we could slide into uh, a, a couple of the other articles. Sure. Uh, we might as well kind of go right into the uh, the uh, act related ones. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's it's somewhat connected. And so uh, this article for folks that 
maybe maybe aren't familiar and, and you will see all these in the show notes but it's um from uh behavior analysis and practice oh is it published this year yeah. just in february uh it's amazing uh systematic review of the acceptance of acceptance and commitment training components in the behavioral intervention of individuals with um, autism and developmental disorders so what and I guess this is just maybe this is just sort of standard PhD stuff. But if you're if you're doing a doctorate where, where you were doing your one thesis, mm-hmm. how, how did this one kind of come about? Yeah, that's a good question. So for the program that I went through, there were different degree requirements. And mm. some of them were like being a second author on a paper or a first and being, mm. you know, just different types of requirements. So this fulfilled one of them. And the way that this paper came about was that we really sort of identified this need for the review paper because there's this great interest um, from behavior analysts in ACT training and using it within the service provision of ABA with individuals with autism. And so we wanted to do a review to see like, well, what research do we have on the use of ACT training with this population and not specifically with individuals with autism, but with our clients their families, um, the staff that we work with. And so Mm. we did a review of papers that included any ACT component as an intervention Mm. with either an individual with autism, their family members, or their staff. How did you sort of determine... Like So what are are those components, first off? Maybe you could just get a, a brief overview of what the ACT components are. The second secret word is generalization. Yeah, sure. So the ACT components come from the hexaflex, and they're these six main processes. So you have present attention or present moment attention, which is also referred to as mindfulness in some of the literature. Mm. You have values clarification, committed action, selfless context, diffusion, and acceptance. So we looked at studies that included any interventions with any of these components and specifically studies that were single subject design studies, since that's what um, we know our field really focuses on. So then we summarized basically the findings of all of these single subject research designs that included any of these components with the population of either staff, parents, or individuals with autism. So these studies might not have been actually act studies exactly studies that had those pieces yeah because most of them actually didn't have all of the components most of them had only one or two of the components i think there was actually only one study that had all six um and so even though it wasn't act training specifically it included a component of act and so we chose to review it so and, and were, were these all studies done by behavior analysts no they weren't which was really interesting hmm. and At first, we were kind of thinking of like, well, should we include like group designs and studies from outside? And maybe we should only include single subject designs. And then when we decided to only include the single subject designs, we still looked at like, where are these studies coming from? And we found that a lot of them were published in behavior analytic journals, like behavior analysis and practice, um, behavior modification, journal of contextual behavior science. But then other ones were published in autism journals, like the research in autism spectrum disorders journal or research in developmental disabilities journal. And then others were in more traditional psychology journals, like the journal of mental health research and intellectual disabilities. So they kind of came from various different journals across different um, fields, I guess. Yeah, because I mean, what stood out for me right away was the, you know, the the mindfulness section, 
um, in that, you know, first off, it looked, it was obviously the one you had, you know, the most studies right. from. Almost all of those studies, you know, are, are coming from, from, you know, Dr. Singh yeah. and, and, and sort of his group. Yeah. Right? And, and he's, he's sort of been, you know, really pumping out the mindfulness stuff, but I've never, I would say never, I haven't actually seen, you know, Dr. Singh kind of referenced, you know, in terms of act, exactly. I've just always seen them in terms of mindfulness. Yeah, and that's exactly right. In those studies, act was typically not mentioned. What was mentioned was mindfulness practice. Um, and we chose to include it anyway because mindfulness or present moment attention is a part of the act hexaplex. So it is a component. So it counts because it's a component. And what we really mm-hmm. wanted to sort of depict is that there's research on these different components with the populations that we work with. And so we wanted to mm-hmm. just explore what's out there, even if it's not mm-hmm. depicted as act training. Um, mm-hmm. If it has these components, we can explore it and sort of think about how it applies to our practice. I mean, I, I'm, I'm guessing the answer is yes, but like, is act actually a thing? I mean, I know there's, I know there's, uh, there's, you know, there's, there's a whole, there's a whole society behind it and 600, you know, randomized control yeah. trial studies and so on and so forth. So obviously it's, so that, that may be a silly question, but um, is ACT a thing or is ACT just a, a thing that combines all these together? That's a good question. Um, and I think it depends and I might be wrong. So I would encourage the listeners to like go ask other people. Um, yeah, yeah. But I think there's ACT in sort of the traditional psychotherapy context. Right. And then there's ACT training, which is what, as a behavior analytic community, we've really been talking about, which mm-hmm. is applying ways to train people to use these components to either engage in new behaviors or um, decrease problematic behaviors. And so ACT training is really just the teaching of the components of this model to create behavior change. I guess just I guess just looking at you know and, and again you're right and and these may be questions I need to ask sort of the people that are actually doing this work but I lo- I'm just I'm, I'm looking at your table of uh, of of the you know percentage of the studies yeah. based on the different components of the hexaflex and so we see you know and I'm not looking for you to sort of give me an overview of this study but we see uh, like under acceptance for example there's two studies there uh, you know one's obviously uh, you know. Tom Sabo and the other one's Evelyn Gould. And so Evelyn Gould's got a study on acceptance. And so, and I, and, and, and I realize as I ask this question that maybe it's impossible to answer, but um, it's too late now. Um, <laughs> um, um, that, that it's possible that we could, that one could use just acceptance as an intervention. I think so. Um, if she's done, if, she, if, if someone's done a study on it, again, we don't know what the study says. Maybe the study says never use acceptance alone as an intervention. Google that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, let, let's hope that's not what it says. Right. I think it just depends on like what the goals are. And so what I'm thinking yeah. of with acceptance is like perhaps you have some sort of problematic thought that's really interfering with your ability to complete tasks or something. And so maybe accepting that that thought is just a thought and that you can still complete your tasks, even if that thought is there, could be an intervention to maybe help with increasing the completion of the task or something. So I, I would imagine that it can. And um, I think part of what this paper shows is that you don't have to have all of the components present. You can have them yeah. in isolation or maybe some together and it's still a treatment of some sort or an intervention of some sort. And we can really use each of these components in a unique way, depending on what our goals are 
either with staff or parents or individuals with autism. That's a great answer because I, I think I think that's kind of what I was getting at is 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 act isn't sort of an all or nothing approach, right. and and that there's a bunch of different pieces in there, and you know and maybe you won't even call it act, but it, that, that that that's fine. Yeah. What what uh, what did you find out in this in this in this in this review? So we found that there are various studies that include the different components of act as interventions with this population, so whether staff or parents or individuals with autism. And what we found is that 27% of them had PND scores that indicated they were highly effective. So with the PND score, we looked at the percentage of the non-overlapping data. And if you're familiar with PND scores, it's a way to look at the efficacy of the intervention. Um, so 27% is pretty low when you look at it as a whole, but I think it's a start. Like we see that some of these are effective. Um, some of them were only moderately effective and some of them were minimally effective. But what's interesting is that we only looked at data that all studies included. So some studies had more phases than others. Something that was really common in the mindfulness studies is that they had this, I forget what they called it, but it was like, um, a post-practice phase or something like that, or after they did the training, they would practice independently. And the data really kept improving throughout that phase. But since all the studies didn't have that phase, we couldn't get the PND analysis to be comparative unless each study had those phases. So what we did is we only looked at the data from the training phase across the studies. So even though in our results, we're saying that uh, this percentage of studies were below minimally effective, it really could be because we didn't consider all of the data from all of the phases. So there's room to sort of explore even these minimally effective studies in terms of how their results maintained and even improved post-training, and which I think is really unique to mindfulness and present moment attention studies specifically because they all, well, not all, but a lot of them had those phases where the learner would keep practicing the skill even after training, and we saw that the data kept improving. What did you find out find in terms of sort of in terms of the intensity piece, like the, the length of training? Yeah, that's a good question. And it really differed. So some of the studies really gave us detailed information about the length of the training. Other ones, they kind of gave us like the number of sessions. And then we saw like how long were the sessions and then calculated the overall intensity. Um, but what we found is that it really ranged. Like some studies had longer, more intense interventions that had longer hours over a longer period of time. Others were only like a one hour training one time and they still had an effect. Yeah. So it was cool to see that range and to see that there's really like not one intensity that seems to be more effective, but that there's really options. So I think we need some more work in figuring out like what do these intensities mean and what do these results mean in terms of what are we looking for in the intensity of the intervention? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's probably not going to work out like it has for, you know, some of the, uh, you know, early intervention kind right. of studies that, you know, basically have come up with, you know, uh, a, a sort of a standard kind of dosage or at least a mean dosage per se. I know, I know when, um, uh, I think it was Dr. Leaf was talking about, um, uh, recently, I think about, I think there was a, a bit of misinformation around sort of the, uh, the the 40-hour right. number or whatever, and, and that, that that wasn't actually the number, but it was actually a, a, some sort of average or range, a range of like 15 to right. something, and, 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 and that came in there. Uh, but that, that um, 
you know, that this with ACT, it's probably not going to be like that. It's we're probably going to find out that, you know, most kids need 15 hours a week of exactly or whatever. And then the other one I wondered about, and, and, and really, I, I don't know if this is just more of something I noticed and, and there might not be much to build on here, but I, I thought it was interesting that only four of the studies were assessed, assessed for generalization. Is that, is that a, do you know why that is? Like, I, like it's, just, just before you answer the reason I ask is because generalization. So there's been sort of two areas of, of ABA that, um, you know, I, I don't think we've seen enough, uh, work on in, in, in studies. Um, and, 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 and it's been acknowledged by, you know, many of many a person in the field one. And I think you acknowledged it actually in your experiment. One of your dissertation was social validity, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, you didn't have that piece. So an experiment too, yet you, you added the social validity component. Um, and that's something that I think we're starting to see a little more of, but it's something that's really been missing from most mm-hmm. studies, you know, sort of in ABA. But the other area is generalization. Like it just, it, it's an area that's not touched on a lot in studies. And yet, particularly when it comes to sort of our, our, you know, our, our, our artistic folk, um, generalization is, is, is tends to be a deficit right, for, right. For, for learning skills. And yet, you know, 2021, and um, we're looking at studies in an area that's newer in behavior analysis, and yet we're still only seeing four studies assessing for generalization. You, any idea why that is? Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know exactly why it might be. I would imagine that a typical reason which I see just within like my clinical practice work is limited resources. Like we don't have a bunch of different environments that we can go assess. We have just like Mm. what's available to us, or we don't have like a ton of different people that we can use to evaluate generalization across people. And so we kind of work with what we have, at least in clinical practice. And I would imagine that within these studies, we might see some similar barriers. I also kind of feel like and this is just my sort of thought and my feeling. Um, I feel like sometimes it's easy to like forget about generalization because you see an effect and you're like, oh, yay, this is great. And then we forget that like, well, it's great because it's worked with your training, but how do you know that it's going to work um, in terms of generalization? So I think sometimes we oversee it in the same way that we've maybe overseen things like social validity. And I think that there's a lot of value in emphasizing generalization outcomes in the same way as social validity. I just don't see it as often as I think we could see it. Yeah. Like I see like in, 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 in our realm, in the company that I work for, uh, CBI consultants, um, our, our company and all, pretty much all we do is parent and staff training. Um, uh, we don't have RBTs and interventionists and that sort of thing. And so when we, I know, again, I know for my intern, when she's doing uh, sort of act interventions with families, she's often, you know, she'll be working with, with, with a, with a, 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 you know, a kid or whatever. And, um, you know, maybe on some sort of, you know, and I'm not going to butcher names, but on some sort of act related intervention, but then what she's got to do before, you know, and these are sort of temp, uh, the, 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 without getting too deep into funding models, essentially we're able to provide a free service to families for up to a Mm -hmm. year. And so basically they've got up to a year to generalize those skills to the parents or to the staff. 
So they have to train for generalization. They have to do that because they have to fade themselves out. And so she's, and she does a great job of sort of teaching, get, bringing the parents in and sort of transferring those skills over. Um, but, um, but I could see sort of in, in other contexts where maybe, uh, you know, that might not seem like a, 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 as much of a priority, especially in sort of these sort of RBT kind of model type. Yeah, especially for the RBT um, model and also like the parent model, if you're teaching them to maybe use these um, exercises independently, I think, I mean, you could evaluate, like, can they use them in different settings, but maybe the goal is to like use them at your house when you're practicing meditation. I don't know. So I think there's sort of things to consider with generalization, especially I'm thinking of the present moment attention, like mindfulness practice um, Mm. and how maybe like you should practice mindfulness in one setting only. And so I don't really know like how generalization would work in that sense. I'm just sort of thinking Mm. out loud. No, this is a good point. I mean, I mean, I think, I think if you were trying to generalize mindfulness and it would be interesting to you know, go back and, and to maybe have a chat with Dr. Singh. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, he's definitely on my list of people I want to call. So, um, because yeah, I could totally see, you know, practicing some, doing some sort of, you know, uh, mindfulness, you know, practice, you know, in, in the home setting, but then trying to do it sort of in, in the busy, distracting street corner right. setting where you also need to be right. present or in the restaurant when you want to do mindful eating or whatever. And so I could totally see a kind of a, a, a you know, a, a multiple exemplar instructional universe kind of Horner-esque, yeah. um, you know, uh, training protocol to kind of do mindfulness in all these different contexts. Cause I, 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 I am trying mindfulness myself. I've been trying to do meditation. I've been doing yoga pretty regularly and there's a, there's a bit of meditation, kind of component built into that which i think has been helpful for me um but to actually sit down and try to you know um you know uh, sit up straight and cross my legs and and focus on my breath for more than five minutes is right, tough. right and i have to do it upstairs you know with all the doors closed and the fans on so i can't hear a sound anywhere and i could just imagine trying to do it sort of you know sitting in my car on the bridge in rush hour um, uh, you know, maybe not the best time to do it while you're in the car, but, you know, sit, sitting somewhere where it's really noisy um, and trying to kind of generalize that. I don't think I'd do a very good job. Yeah. And I'm also thinking like, I guess maybe also what we're looking for is the generalization of the outcome. So maybe like the practicing the mindfulness mm. is one thing, but then whether you display, I don't know, like self-regulation in different settings would be mm. what we're looking yeah, for. Yeah, that's a good point yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. One thing I did like from this section, though, was um, the maintenance assessment. So, and, and again, I would talked about this quite a bit in the in, in the podcast I, uh, interview I did with Joe. Uh, we talked a lot about maintenance. He does he has studies that are um, with um, I think his longest one was seven year follow up, and he's currently collecting a data point for twelve years follow up. Amazing. Yeah, really cool. Um, and, and so does, and, and so, and so often what we see in a lot of JABA kind of published studies in particular, um, you know, we see like two weeks or right. a month or two months, you know, kind of follow up. Um, I was impressed to see that over half of these had didn't assess maintenance at a year or more and, and that some of them even longer, like that's amazing. Right. Yeah. Up to four years. Um, yeah, yeah, which is, which is brilliant. And, and I've often heard you know, that folks are unable to kind of do that for different reasons. And, and so clearly it's, it's possible. 
Um, so any sort of what, what were sort of the, the the any sort of big final results from this this particular study? I think the or conclusions, I suppose. Yeah, I think the main sort of I guess finding or take home is that we have options and ways that we can use act training components within our ABA practice. Of course, there are gaps in the literature, and so future research has some things to address. Um, but really, we do just have options and ways that we can incorporate these components with our staff and our parents and our our learners. Yeah, for sure. Really cool read, and I think really good for folks. Um, you know, there may be folks out there that. Uh, you know, maybe they've been working in, in sort of ACT for a while or been learning about ACT, to know that there is a lot of really neat research out there that might not have acceptance and commitment training in the yeah. title, um, or or even acceptance and commitment and and um or even acceptance. Um uh, that 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 still are covering these components and still kind of go to the evidence. So that when so you know if, if anything you take from this um research um you know change up your search terms because there's a lot of really neat stuff out there that fits into sort of the act framework but may not actually be called so if you don't mind i i mean i think we've got a little bit of time left um uh and you do have i do have one more study of yours are you you interested in talking about it sure okay cool so this one kind of takes a different direction uh, and this was a study you did uh, that also uh, was, uh, it was published at, uh, also in February. Um, uh, and this is the uh, Standards for Interprofessional Collaboration in the Treatment of Individuals with Autism. So I always find it interesting some of these studies, um, you know, and I, I think they're important and they're needed um, and it's good work. But sometimes I find it interesting that we have studies on things that, you know, Sometimes yeah. obvious. Um, and I'm not saying your study is obvious. I mean, as you get into it more, you go, okay, now I see what you're saying. Now you're, you're, this is this is pretty good. But sort of, you know, like we we, you know, like 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 those like the studies that came out and finally showed that cigarettes right, cause lung right. cancer. You know, and even though everyone knew that for 30 years, or or that or studies that show, um, like I, I, there's I'm, I'm interviewing a fella in the UK, and he's got a study um, that looks cool, but you know, from a sort of, you know, common sense angle seems strange. And the study was um, use of positive greetings at the door to increase on-task behavior. So essentially saying, being nice and saying hi to people when they come into the classroom, they're more likely to participate. And uh, and there's been a lot of the kind of, I've seen a lot of these kinds of studies where it's stuff that, you know, well, well, yeah, that, that makes right. sense. Why do we need a study? Why do we need a study on standards for interprofessional collaboration? The third secret word is empathy. Yeah, that's a great question. And when we were thinking of this paper and putting it together, what we found is that there's all this literature and really none of it is like experimental literature, but all of this like commentary um, literature that's saying collaboration likely leads to optimal outcomes because if you can have all these people working together, like you were describing kind of like a no-duh situation, but there's not really any literature that tells you how to do it. Like, okay, I Hmm. see I should be collaborating with my clients, doctors and psychologists and speech language pathologists, but like, how do I do that? 
what are the rules in collaborating? Like, do I just show up and talk to them about what they're doing? Like, should I have meetings? There's just no sort of outline as to what I should do to engage in this sort of interprofessional collaboration behavior. And so our goal was to outline these standards. And when we first thought of the paper, we actually called them bylaws, but then we decided we didn't like that word and we changed it to standards to sort of let people know these are some behaviors you can engage in that support this interprofessional collaboration sort of model that is discussed in the literature. And that's how we came up with these. And so we outlined these standards that are honestly pretty like intense and very optimistic because I see that there's a lot of challenges to like having monthly meetings with all these different people or sharing all your data all the time. Um, That really is like an ideal world scenario. And we know that, but the hope is that they really sort of set a standard for things that we could do and maybe inform ways that we could teach um, in a professional collaboration and get us thinking about what can we actually do and what behaviors can we engage in that support collaborative efforts. One thing I love about studies like this, and this is this is a really great example, is is, is I, I love these kinds of studies that that where behavior analysts are writing studies to basically improve kind of the soft skills of behavior analysts. Um, and you know, I've seen there's a uh, there's that uh, is it is it LeBlanc that she does do the one on 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 meetings. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's uh, you know, kind of how to run an effective meeting. There's all of those uh, great uh, LeBlanc and Sellers and, and Ally uh, sort of articles in, in the book, of course, on sort of supervision type behaviors. And they just list them all out. And I love how they just list them all out specifically and, and operationally and, 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 and kind of in order. I, I mean, I, I just think it's, it's a great these they, they provide these really great kind of task analyses on stuff we don't learn in school. Right. And which I think is actually a thing you actually touch on in this paper um, uh, is that we don't, what was, I think, what was it? Uh, I had it highlighted here. Yeah. Uh, 67% of, of uh, students, uh, well, it was, it was Kelly and Takani mm-hmm. surveyed 300 behavior professionals and individuals with ASD and found that 67% of them had not taken any collaboration courses at the university level. And 45% had not participated in any, uh, PD activities that that address collaboration. I'm surprised actually that those numbers were, that that there's actually is 33% of folks that have taken collaboration courses at university. Right. Um, uh, I'd like to know what universities those are because it wasn't mine. Um, I shouldn't say that. That's not true. uh, Mine uh, mine did do some really good stuff around um, uh, collaboration with families, but not so much, I think, around collaboration with kind of other professionals. Yeah. the first thing you kind of talk about is is these sorts of different types of different terms, which I think would be good to break down for folks. I mean, everyone's heard of a multidisciplinary team, but I don't think anybody knows what that means and actually knows that there's different levels of that. Can you just sort of just so they're talking about multidisciplinary, then you talk about interdisciplinary, then you talk about transdisciplinary. Yeah. What's the difference? Is one better than the other? Um, That's a really good question. Um, And when we were building this paper, we kind of explored this. Like, I had no idea. I thought that interprofessional collaboration was just like collaborating with different professionals. And I didn't realize that there um, were sort of different levels to this. And so the purpose of including all of this, because I realized this paper is like kind of long and it really does talk about these different levels somewhat extensively, was to outline how these different levels of collaboration each have their own 
sort of description of what that looks like. And so a lot of us might be collaborating in one way um, that maybe isn't like the ideal way, even though we don't really know about it. And so we found this one sort of um, paper that compares the collaboration methods to different foods. And it sounded kind of silly when we were putting it together, but I think it really helps to display what it looks like to collaborate at these different I wouldn't really call them levels, but like the, the different descriptions of collaboration. Mm. Um, and let me look at that figure because I forget exactly off of the top of my head, which one is which. Give me just a second. Oh yeah. So the multidisciplinary collaboration is the salad example where professionals work in parallel. So they're each kind of doing their own thing and they might still communicate sometimes, but really everyone's doing their own discipline specific tasks. So there's no like merging of the ingredients. They're just all like there doing their thing. Mm. And then the interdisciplinary example is more of like a soup or a stew where the ingredients are together and like the flavors kind of blend, but you can still see each ingredient in its own fashion. So tasks are coordinated. There's more frequent communication. They might share some goals and responsibilities, um, but there's still these discipline specific roles. And then the transdisciplinary model is like a cake where like you can't see the egg and the milk and the flour. It's all mixed together. And so there's no specific you do this and I do that, but it's more of like a role expansion where there's integrated practice and there's shared problem solving and unified treatment plans. So the goal is the transdisciplinary collaboration. Again, it seems really idealistic. I don't really know that it's possible to have transdisciplinary collaboration unless everyone's working under one organization. I would imagine that interdisciplinary is more of what we can achieve if we're all working at separate organizations. Um, but the goal is to have this transdisciplinary collaboration because it is the most unified where everyone is really working sort of in a, we're all on the plain, same playing field. We all have shared goals way. And I think if there's different professionals within one organization that really facilitates that, but otherwise I think it's really hard, but that's the goal. So is the idea then that these standards that you 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 put together if you kind of follow these that you'll have transdisciplinary or yeah exactly so we created this tool which is within the paper and the tool is you can sort of score your your um, professional collaboration so if you're like sharing your data maybe monthly or meeting every now and then you'll sort of score how you're doing on each of these standards and if you have a score of a certain amount or more, then you're transdisciplinary. If you're a little bit below that, then you know you might be more in the interdisciplinary side. And so it kind of lets you gauge the degree of your collaborative efforts um, using this worksheet or scoring sheet that we provide. So you've got the scoring and then do the actual standards kind of help you improve your score? Is that the idea? Yeah, exactly. So if you can score each standard higher, which means you're doing it more often, then you're on that transdisciplinary side. Now, there's a lot of standards here. Before we kind of get into them a little bit, how did you come up with them? I mean, cause, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. We really explored as much literature as we could find on collaboration and the different suggestions that it had or findings that were shared within those papers. And that's how we developed the standards. And we wanted to make them on the more stringent side. So we always took the information that was the most 
collaborative, I guess, and used that to set the standard. So they are like very gold star per se. And again, I don't think that we can uphold them perfectly, especially given that most of us work in like ABA specific practices. And if you're reaching out to an individual's doctor, the doctor works somewhere else and their psychologist works somewhere else. So I think that having perfect scores on the standards and the tool within the paper is difficult for us working in ABA specific agencies. But the goal is that we can start to think about what we can do and how we can improve our scores to try to make our collaboration as cake as possible. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned it somewhere in the article and I think, and you also said it to me just a few minutes ago that ideally you know you, this would all be under one organization yeah um like is it, and i get that i mean it, like i i'm looking at all these and i'm sort of imagining you know i'm on a i'm on a team and you know i've got a i've got school staff and i've got the parents and i've got the psychologist and the social yeah. worker and you know all these different people from different realms to try to kind of i, I mean I, I do see in some meeting scenarios which i think is great that there's sort of a you know, uh, you know, let's set, you know, I don't know if it's ground rules or let's, you know, uh, let's, let's have a terms of reference or, um, or let's have a, you know, a code of conduct, you know, sort of for our meetings, you know, and that sort of thing. Don't, don't speak at a turn and be respectful and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, usually that takes, you know, sort of the first 10 minutes or, or maybe you might dedicate one meeting to that sort of roles and responsibilities or whatever. Is that is it is it feasible to to kind of do this kind of stuff when you're not under one roof? I think it depends. Like if you have, I don't know, a speech linguist pathologist that's working with your client also, and you guys have each other's email and you're communicating often and you're sharing your goals with each other, then you start to sort of build on that, getting your standard scores up per se. Um, but if it's like to where you can't contact them and maybe like the parent doesn't want you communicating with mm. them, so there's no release of information, then you have that barrier. So I think it really depends. I think that a lot of what happens, and I, this is just from my perspective in clinical practice, is that we don't really have opportunities to collaborate. Like we're each working in parallel. We're the salad yep. kind of all doing our thing. We yep. get reports from one another on like, okay, that's what you found. That's great. And it might inform what I do, but we're just not working together and we're still making meaningful outcomes. So I don't want anyone to think like, if you're not collaborating, you're not doing it right. It's mm -hmm. just that if you collaborate, you can maybe um, do it better. Mm -hmm. And so the goal is to see like, what can I do? Like if, I am only getting these reports and I am like the salad model. Is there anything I could do that would push me more towards the soup or the cake? Like maybe I can try to reach out via email and maybe like have monthly phone calls. Like what are, if anything, what can I do? Mm -hmm. But then I guess it's just how to decide what to do. Cause like I said, there's so many different, um, there's so many, there's so many different standards here. Like, I, I mean, they're awesome, but it just seems like, like I, I wouldn't even know where to start. Yeah, I think that's a great point because I, when we were writing this paper, I often felt like it was overwhelming. There's so much information and in there are all these standards. So I think if you have this paper and you wish to use it, I would start with the um, checklist tool or the self-assessment mm -hmm. tool that's provided and sort of run through the items in the tool and see like, is there any of these that I'm already doing? And right. if not, are there any that I could do? Like maybe I, when I talk to the other providers, I use a lot of jargon. Like maybe I could use language that everybody understands and try to limit my jargon. And that's one thing that I could do. Um, and so just looking at each of 
the items in the checklist or the score sheet and seeing which of these can I work on, I think is a good place to start. You know, it's almost like the only thing that that's missing from this um, uh, is is that that it wasn't written by a transdisciplinary team. Right. You know, like, I, you know, because I, I can see folks going, you know, you know, because uh, this is sort of that play nice in the sandbox kind of stuff we talk about a lot. Yeah. Um, and I could see someone going, well, those are that that's what you ABA folks are saying the standards are. Right. Um, like, it'd be interesting to, to get some agreement from sort of other disciplines to go. Yeah, we agree that these are all really important um, and kind of to kind of have that piece. Cause I just wonder about sort of. Um, like, I'm just trying to think about how you go about sort of saying to your team, hey, I want to do a checklist. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Like, how do you even initiate this collaborative practice without being not collaborative? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and that's where that's where being all in one organization, I think, would help with that, because then yeah. you could like it would come from the organization totally. instead of like from one provider. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I could totally see me using this like in our agency. We don't have we don't we don't have uh, OTs and SOPs and whatnot, but we do have folks, for example, that work like in, well, they're, they're just work in kind of different areas. Like I could see this, I could see this applying to not necessarily across sort of those standard type of uh, disciplines that we always assume we always assume we're going to collaborate with an SOP or an OT, right, or, or 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 a teacher, but we could collaborate with you know. I mean, we could be just collaborating with each other. We could it could be multiple behavior analysts working on a topic, and and this could apply. So, or even could, what I think of like is the RBT collaborating with the BCBA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly, and so that's where. So I think you're right. I think I think if you're in the context of your own agency where you've got folks in in multiple roles of kind of any kind, I think this is going to be a great tool to kind of um, you know assess the efficiency and and uh, you know especially if. Um, um, one phrase that they're using a lot in, in my workplace is this idea of kind of breaking down silos. Right. Um, and so, and, and, you know, I think that's, I think this would, this would be a great measure of whether those silos are being broken down. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually probably going to try it. Cool. Uh, yeah, really cool. Um, so yeah, neat. I mean, it's just good because I, I kind of went into this sort of thinking, okay, this is great, but this is kind of fluffy. Yeah. Like, uh, like no one's going to be able to do this stuff, but you're right. But I think, I think if you can consider the different the different contexts you're in, um, and, and who you're collaborating with, it there there's no and 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 like you said, to go through the checklist first, it's quite possible you're going to already have you know a good chunk of these in place, and you're not going to overwhelm the crowd by saying, okay, now right. we're going to go through the 27 standards of this of this meeting. <laughs> right. Do we all agree? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. Really cool. Really neat. So yeah. So I. I think it's probably a good time. We're at the hour and a half mark. Um, really, really neat research. I can see why you like doing it. I mean, and 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 it's great that you're already you're already able to do uh, sort of research in a variety of different areas. I know it's 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 often. Uh, I mean, it's great to have po folks out there that are subject matter experts and whatnot, but uh, that kind of focus on one area and do their research all in one area. But I think it's also really cool to see researchers that are coming out and and just expanding their realms to sort of different different aspects. And so you're talking about ACT and RFT and standards. And I wouldn't be surprised if the next paper that comes out is, you know, is 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 completely unrelated and, <laughs> and equally cool. So re really great work. And Thank you. Uh, yeah. And, and thanks so much for kind of being on. I, I, uh, I, I it was it was it, time time went by fast and 
I learned a lot. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's always fun to talk about the different studies that I've worked on and think about them in different ways. And each time I visit them, I think of something different. So it's always really fun. For sure. Maybe any, any sort of tips out there for, I mean, you're, you're, you're one of them. So for, for young folks out there that are kind of interested in getting into research and kind of, and kind of doing this thing. Yeah. My tip would be, um, well, I guess I have like a top two, maybe three mm. that I can think of. Mm. And my first one would be like network and get a mentor that supports your passions and that you can talk to and bounce ideas off of. And then like, follow Skinner's once you find something interesting, drop everything else and study it, quote, rule, whatever it is. Like if there's a topic that you're interested in and that you feel you want to learn more about, just learn all you can about it until you feel like you have learned a lot about it. Um, I think those are my main two. And then maybe my third one would be is like, just don't be afraid to be wrong. I think right. a lot of times there's hesitation, especially with research, at least for me that like, oh, I'm going to do it wrong or like, I'm going to miss something. And I've learned that like, yeah, I, I probably did get things wrong and I probably will keep getting things wrong, but that's part of the process. And so just don't be afraid of not getting it right. It's just part of the scientific process. Ah, uh, great advice. Great advice. Cool. Well, thanks again for being on the show, Vic. Thanks Super so cool. much.